episode four. We find ourselves revisiting gun control, a conversation we brought up in episode two last fall after the mass shooting in Las Vegas. Uh, Mike is a business owner in Seattle. He owns two stores, one wholesale, one retail, uh, Sport Co. and Outdoor Emporium. It's always important for us to look at history first. And what I'd really like to focus on today is solutions. It actually dates, yeah, probably dates back to um, both America as a kind of as a new colony and how important a armed citizenry was in the independence and, and, and birth of, of the United States. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I believe that's a, that, that's a piece of us being able to protect ourselves and our family and ultimately as you get to its core against tyranny. At the extremes, it's, it's super obvious. Like, it's super obvious that a private citizen should not own a nuclear weapon. It's obvious that a private citizen should and should be allowed to own a handgun to defend themselves and their family. In the, the middle ground is where this debate is happening. Since the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, there have been more than 1,600 mass shootings in the U.S. We have to make sure that if somebody owns a firearm, that it is a hundred percent of the time, if not on their person, it needs to be locked up. These are all bipartisan issues that both sides of the aisle agree on, but when they're raised, it becomes a part of this political conversation that ultimately makes nothing happen. To help educate these people, because we've seen these sad, sad tragedies that are deliberately happened, but there's also so many sad tragedies that are accidental, and those should and could be prevented. How you've been approaching it from a business angle, particularly in terms of uh, some of your competition. Have you received any pressure from either side of the aisle about changing any of your policies or, or anything that you guys are doing? I'm high everything is. Well, my mama told me there'll be days like this. Episode four of our spring season, and it's been a little while since we did a recording, but we started out with a bang this uh, early spring with a live recording with Bill Crystal and Henry Olson, then a national security review with General Dempsey, followed by a conversation with author Dave Specht regarding family-owned businesses and proper succession planning. Really encourage the, our listeners to go back and review those if you haven't. Uh, we've had really good reviews, specifically on the General Dempsey one, because of course he's uh, a you know a, a national figure that everyone respects. So definitely go take a look at those. Um, today we find ourselves revisiting gun control, a conversation we brought up in episode two last fall after the mass shooting in Las Vegas. But this time, to me, and maybe you guys can chime in on this, feels a little different. The school shooting in Parkland, Florida has sparked what seems to be a larger conversation among millennials. Uh, in my opinion, forcing politicians to take a closer look at gun control. And we're recording on a Thursday. This coming Saturday, March 24th, there are over 800 uh, marches planned. The biggest one expecting over 500,000 students 
uh, walking up Penn Avenue in Washington, D.C. So we'll, we'll kind of see what happens there. Joining us on the phone, uh, two people actually, we're, we're trying this for the first time and I guess the inevitable will happen at the end of the spring when if we decide to continue this podcast, we'll be doing it over the phone. We're trying that today with Cove because Cove is remote, but he felt it uh, crucial to dial into this conversation. So he's on the phone with us as well as Mike Coombs. Uh, Mike is a uh, business owner in Seattle. Uh, he owns two stores, one wholesale, one retail, uh, Sport Co. and Outdoor Emporium. And both um, are heavily involved in the sales of guns, ammunitions, and safes. And so, Mike, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here talking to you. Excellent. And and I think by way of agenda, um, it's, it's always important for us to look at history first and then kind of go from there and, and bring it to current situation. And what I'd really like to focus on today is solutions to this issue. Uh, but first, I'll throw it over to Cove to kind of give uh, uh, his take on the history of the Second Amendment. Yeah. So um, I think one of the things that kind of to frame this debate, and it's always important to understand kind of where the people on different sides of this debate um, come from and to understand why America has this almost unique in the world kind of gun culture and, and, and kind of history with the gun. And, and that really does inform, I believe, a lot of, a lot of feeling, um, especially among kind of gun rights advocates, you know, who have very legitimate and, 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 and kind of really heartfelt um, and noble kind of uh, arguments to make on why um, on, on, on why guns should remain such a, as an integral part of American culture and, and, and the American experience. And I can really get why it's ironic for a, for a Brit, you know, having my country having banned pretty much every gun you can possibly think of uh, a few years ago, it is now almost impossible to to own or or, or, uh, or purchase a firearm in the United Kingdom. Um, whereas, obviously, in, in, in the US, the, the the law is almost the exact opposite. So, and and it actually dates, yeah, probably dates back to um, both America as a kind of as a new colony with with um, settlers who who kind of encountered dangers and needed to arm themselves against those those dangers. In a new continent, but also from a from a history of, of, of you know of, of, of our two countries and, and and the American Revolution and and how important a armed citizenry was in the independence and and, and birth of of the United States, and I, I think it's it's really deeply important to understand how connected the idea of a citizen body armed and able to protect itself against the tyranny of government, whether that's a foreign government or a, a, a domestic government, how important that argument is to gun rights and, 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 and the gun control uh, debate that, that, that happens even today. And that, that, you know, to start off with that as a, as a kind of a, a starting point to this conversation, I think really grounds us in why this conversation can go in so many different directions and so many really well-meaning and, 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 and kind of 
good people can have such divergent views on on gun control. For, for, for me, you know, there are, there are always pros and cons to an armed citizenry. There are going to be, you know, there are inevitably going to be bad people or, or, or people with kind of mental health issues or people who just want to do bad things who, who can take advantage of the availability of firearms. And you have to offset that inevitability. And, and, and we finished up our our discussion in, in episode two saying that, you know, after the Vegas shootings, that this was going to happen again. And the likelihood was it was going to happen again sooner rather than later. It was going to happen again with a, with a you know, a quote-unquote assault weapon. Um, and tragically, and yet inevitably, we were, we were proven right in that, in that prediction. Um, so there are, there are the costs of an armed, you know, of, of, of you know, enabling and giving the right to your citizens to be armed with a wider array of, of firearms. But there are, there are the benefits as well. And, and we're not just talking about defending yourself and your family and your property, which is you know the right of, of, of everyone in this country. Um, the, the right to hunt and to, and to enjoy you know, the, the, the outdoors that, that, that this country has. Um, but also the very important last line of defense that an armed citizen body has against the overreach of, of the state. So that, that was kind of, I thought, a good place to, to start this debate. And I think it really, it's like grounds, whatever, you know, wherever we go in this talk, in this discussion onward, in just an understanding and appreciation that we can all have different views, but they all come from largely good places. And they all come from from genuinely kind of well-meaning and, and and legitimate concerns for how we value our rights and our responsibilities as, in my case, a guest, and, and in your case, citizens of of this wonderful country. And I think it it's even a good place to start just reading the Second Amendment in full outright, and it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the reason that I want to break that down, I mean, it's it's a simple sentence, but there's a lot in there that opposing viewpoints will unpack for, to kind of, you know, frame their own conversation. So because we don't necessarily, we I mean, we don't have citizen militias domestically today that was a thing that i mean a thing of the past during the revolutionary war when this was when john madison promoted the second second amendment but it's it's kind of transformed and and there have been many court cases that have said well is it the citizens uh right to bear arms or is it really the militia's right to bear arms or where it's been kind of vague and you wanted to yeah uh i just wanted to make kind of add on to, to, to this and unpack a little bit this argument of, you know, uh, the right to bear arms um, and specifically re- related around tyranny. I believe that, you know, I'm a gun owner, uh, have no assault weapon of any way, shape, or form. Having said that, grew up in a hunting culture, still very much engage in that. Um, but I don't just... Uh, you know, have a, a shotgun uh, or a rifle or a pistol just to hunt. 
I just want to make the argument that subconsciously there's still the argument that having that right to bear arms, having those guns that are in the safe at my house allows me the opportunity to protect my family. And I, I definitely believe that the enemy is different than it used to be back during the time of our founding fathers. And I have no doubt that obviously the U.S. government or any strong force of, um, you know, that, that, that has obviously like huge, uh, huge, you know, military bases and military arms have no question that they could go come to my home and take me out. Having said that, having that ability to bear arms and if you combine that with a lot of other people in our country that have those arms subconsciously, I feel like at minimum, a, a government like our government or any other kind of force has to take that in consideration. And ultimately I believe that's a, that that's a piece of us being able to protect ourselves and our family. And ultimately as you get to its core against tyranny, we're practicing, yeah, the, so, we're, we're practicing yeah, the so. remote. We usually we have visual cues. So we look at Cove and say, <laughs> Cove, you're up. Let's go <laughs> bring it on. Yeah. So I, I, I think, I think that you know, helps us that incre- incredibly well, and and it's about finding that balance of understanding. Okay, so where where do you where do you kind of where's the tipping point between enabling that freedom and ensuring that that right survives and the benefits of that right survives? Where where do, where do you draw the line that minimizes the cost of that freedom? the lowest it can be while still retaining that freedom sure and and I, yeah that 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 you know and we've had supreme court cases that, that you know a private citizen cannot own an apache gunship you know so there are there are lines that are, that are drawn by the state in in you know kind of in the cause of of, of civil defense and security that infringes some degree on the ability of a citizen to, to defend himself. And where you draw that line, I think is going to be absolutely the kind of the, the crux of, the, of this debate going forward nationally, not just the debate we have today, but nationally it's going to be, okay, we understand that at one extreme, like, a person in his home should have the ability to, to have a handgun to defend themselves against criminals and intruders and people who want to hurt their family. And at the other extreme, we understand that a citizen probably shouldn't have the right to own an Apache gunship to be able to take out, you know, or a nuclear weapon. You know, those are things that just only the state should be able to have because it's too dangerous in the hands of, of, a, of a private citizen. And in the middle ground, we have semi-automatic rights. And where, you know, I, you know that, where you draw that line, you know, at the extremes, it's, it's super obvious. Like, it's super obvious that a private citizen should not own a nuclear weapon. It's obvious that a private citizen should should be allowed to own a handgun to defend themselves and their family. In the, the middle ground is where this debate is happening. And unfortunately, these mass shootings that now increasingly and now almost universally seem to feature semi-automatic weapons and semi-automatic rifles, like, 
that is now where this will, where, where the, the kind of these two issues are butting up against each other and provoking debate and and, and provoking you know, those those marches that we're going to see this weekend, but also provoking gun owners and, and, and people who say actually you know maybe maybe that is a, a price worth paying or maybe like to, to, to maintain this freedom or potentially this freedom is is, is too valuable to the wholesale giveaway and there are other things we need to do around other causes of mass shootings that that actually need, need, need to be addressed first before gun control can, can you know really really be discussed as a, as a, as a solution so right yeah i i i, 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 I cove i i I, I hear what you're saying and I totally agree with it's all about defining where those lines are. I just think as a basis for kind of a, a national kind of conversation, I think it's important to start with, do we as Americans have the right to bear any type of arms? And my perspective is, yes, Americans have that right. Having said that, I believe that, yes, it's all about defining what those lines are and jumping into a solution. My perspective very much is, look, you don't need a semi-automatic to go hunt a deer or to go out west and to hunt an elk or to go enjoy waterfowl hunting in, in, in the south, right? Having said yeah. that, you can use those type of guns in a safe like setting in your home, have them in a safe, and you can still, by my definition, use that to quote unquote, you know, protect like your 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 your, your family. My my, if I was a policymaker and being a conservative, I would have no problem sitting down at the table and saying, "Look, I'm okay to talk about what that line is, and from my line is, I'm okay to talk about semi-automatics, automatics, ultimately." could very much be completely illegal or at minimum create very difficult laws or policies or difficult laws and policies that would impede people from being able to go get those type of like guns. Like I'm okay having that discussion and even kind of throwing out that out there. Having said that, if you draw your line at you can own a shotgun or you can own a, a, a rifle or you can own a handgun, right? And I understand all the background checks. I'm open to kind of talking about all the different background checks you can have. If you still allow those type of weapons, but not allow semi-automatics and things like that, my, my take is, as a pragmatist and a realist, is that there are still guns out there right now, and there will still be guns that are being trafficked, tra uh, that are being you know trafficked through drugs and things like that that still are going to put our children, our kids, our family, our friends at risk at schools. And so my perspective is you got to start, start talking about if, if, if your most valuable asset um, is your, your, your family member and you have a child at school, then you should talk about closed campuses that are on lockdown, that you have like a gate or a door one or two entry points that are like gated off and secure and that at those different entry points you maybe have metal detectors or even you have someone that is trained and qualified that those schools via like parents actually pay money to have someone that has a, a, a that, that, that that carries and I, I know that we just had this shooting and obviously individuals like that, you know, didn't step up. And I understand there's always questions around that. 
But I think from a solution perspective, you can draw the line, but still things like this are probably still going to happen. So you got to talk about tangible solutions that you can put in place to protect like children's at, children at school. Yeah. And, and let's, let's get there. I, I do want to talk about solutions and I think it, it's probably time to bring it uh, more to today's events. And in preparing for this conversation, I came across an article with incredible statistics since the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, there have been more than 1,600 mass shootings in the U.S. 1,600, and a mass shooting defined as four people or more dying, not including the offender. So that's killing more than 1,800 people and wounding more than 6,400 since 2012, the Sandy Hook massacre. I thought that was incredible. The the problem that we're running into, of course, is you follow the money, and a lot of the money is coming from the NRA, and the NRA is very outspoken. And Wayne Lapierre, the president of the NRA, said in a, a couple of weeks ago, making it you know a very partisan issue, he claimed, uh, I'll paraphrase a little bit, that the Democratic Party is infested with saboteurs who don't believe in capitalism, don't believe in the Constitution, don't believe in our freedom, and don't believe in America as we know it. And that's the kind of rhetoric that I think hurts because we need this to be a bipartisan issue. And, and I think we have differing opinions on the phone today, which is a good thing. And I want to get to solutions. Uh, first, Mike, I, but, I'd like but, to get... But let me just say this. Are they that different? Because like, I think you guys answer this. Do, are we saying that we should eliminate guns? I'm no. not. I'm so, so I think we're starting. What was the question? My question is, because I, I, I don't think all of us are really that polarized here. I guess my question is just a baseline. Are any of us on this phone arguing that there should be no guns at all in any way, shape, or form that any American could ever own? I don't think any of us are there. No, no, I, I don't think so. And I want to get back to, you know, a few things. Uh, mental health needs to be cleaned up. Um, we also probably need to be educating our people on firearms and firearm safety. Um, and when you talk about semi-automatic weapons, you have to remember that three-quarters of all the shotguns sold today are semi-automatic shotguns. Three-quarters to 90% of all pistols sold today are semi-automatic pistols. So we have to take that into consideration that with the assault weapon or the AR-15, that's one topic to talk about, and then there's all the others to talk about. Um, talking about, you know, I know there's discussion out there with raising the, the age, um, and me personally, I'm, I'm fine with that. But now you have to ask yourself, okay, if we're going to ask somebody to be in the military and handle these weapons at 18, should they now be 21 to go into the military? Um, and the other thing we need to talk about is is gun safety and, and locking up these firearms. I do believe that if some of these uh, sad tragedies that have happened, if that individual was not able to get access to either a family's gun, uh, a friend's gun, some of these might have been um, not happening. So we have to make sure that if somebody owns a firearm, that it is a hundred percent of the time, if not on their person, it needs to be locked up. 
And and Mike, could you could you kind of set the record straight for us? And because a lot of our listeners are millennials that probably have never bought or attempted to buy a gun, can you talk us through the sale of a gun at your store? And it it probably be unique to Seattle or the state of Washington because every state's a little different. But from a customer coming into your door, what does that sale look like? What's the process to get a, a, a gun in someone's hand? Well, first of all, in, in our establishment, and it should be in every um, gun dealer establishment, we have the right to refuse the sale of any gun at any time. And we do. If, if there's any presence of alcohol on this person's breath, any presence of drugs uh, on this person or under the influence, we stop the sale automatically at that point, no questions asked. If we deem that this person is is of good nature and is of the age uh, to buy a gun, and, and in the state of Washington, it's 18 to buy a long gun, which would be a shotgun or a rifle, and it's 21 to buy a handgun. Um they then go through a 4473 form background check, and they fill out all the information. Then that is uh, called into the next check, and they do a background check on, on this individual. If everything checks out, then on a long gun and shotgun, they can take possession that day. On a handgun, if they don't have a concealed weapons permit, they need to go through a seven-day waiting period. Now, I will tell you that I believe there needs to be a better job done on the 4473 and background checks. Um, we, we look at these individuals, and if we don't believe they're safe with a firearm for whatever reason, and you can kind of tell when they're in the store handling this firearm, that muzzle shall never, ever cross somebody's body or anything like that. If I see that, I stop that transaction right there, and, and I tell them they can go buy some pepper spray, some self-defense spray, uh, and then I stop that sale, and, and they need to go get further training. So for me, um, I would much rather make sure we're selling to a good, solid person than to try to put money into our into our bank account for the sale of the gun that we would much much we don't want that we want somebody to be safe the other thing that i think that we can all look at is when every one of us uh learned to to drive a car for example you had to go through driving courses you had to go through written courses and you had to be educated and pass the test before you could drive currently in in washington that isn't happening. I think that I would be okay with having that happen, that they need to go through a training course to show that they've had some sort of training and, and formal um, education on the handling of a firearm. And that, that's not presently happening. And then, the, and then the third thing is, you know, I think we need to really, really crack down on, on the safety, making sure that these firearms are locked up um, and there's many different ways to police that, you know, through insurance and different ways. So, um, and you mentioned, well, yeah, it, that's, that's my take on that. And ask. So I, 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 I can't think there are many people who are going to listen to this who feel that kind of training, like mandatory training programs in order to 
own and 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 have a firearm, you know, so, you know, sound unreasonable. Like I I I I, I you know I, I struggle to to comprehend. You know, you say you need it for a car, which is a you know, and and, and you know, in the wrong hands, equally lethal item, possibly less lethal. Um, and, and you don't need that for a for, for a firearm. Why why do you think legislation like that? That has been talked of and proposed in the past, like, you know, is 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 so is so objectionable that it that it that it that it hasn't become law. Uh, not not to be the guy who always talks about polarization, but I mean it, that's that is this is a classic classic example of it because someone like Harold immediately gets concerned that we are trying to say we want to ban all guns from the United States. None of us have said that I'm, I'm by far the most liberal person in the room. And I, I don't think that at all. I mean, first of all, that's the Supreme court has decided that, that, that is not going to be the case with Heller versus DC 2008. Um, they, they upheld that citizens are, are allowed to have weapons, um, in their home, unconnected with them as part of some sort of militia. Uh, now that's not, that's not unlimited, rights uh it, it they they referred to common use weapons so that would qualify your shotguns your handguns and we could have a debate about if semi-automatic weapons are part of that common use but the the issue is this polarization which jake mentioned earlier we should have this should be a bipartisan issue i mean mike gun gun safes in homes and train safety training for people buying guns there's not a person who would disagree with that in in principle um but the issue is it's become a political it's it's been put in the political context by organizations like the NRA like Jake mentioned earlier where you know it it becomes an issue that divides people and when you mention something like background checks or you mention something like restrictions on automatic weapons or you mention uh, something like an assault weapon ban immediately what comes to the mind of someone like Harold is all of my guns are going to get taken away because this is an issue that is so heavily politicized. And that, that to me prevents us from making progress on things that are at the end of the day, bipartisan. I mean, I think, you know, having a metal detector at schools makes sense. I, looking at some of these stats, this is from a, this is from a Quinnipiac poll immediately following Parkland or about two weeks after Parkland. 97% of Americans support universal background checks. That's 99% of Democrats, 97% of Republicans. 67% of Americans support some form of assault weapon ban. That's 91% of Democrats, 43% of Republicans, 53% of gun owners. So the majority of gun owners support that. The majority of gun owners support stricter background checks, universal background checks. They support, uh, they, gun owners don't, but the majority of Americans, 82%, support raising the minimum, minimum age to 21. 83% support banning bump stocks. These are all bipartisan issues that both sides of the aisle agree on, but when they're raised, it becomes a part of this political conversation that ultimately makes nothing happen. And, and I think it's still follow the money. I mean, the NRA donated i think upwards of 400 million last year to the republican effort or in 2016 to the republican effort to get seats in congress and 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 trump elected uh, mike i, I want to get back to um 
part of your process, you mentioned the NICS database, which is the, I, I don't have the acronym in front of me, but it's, the, it's essentially the, the criminal offense database. One of the two bills that, there, there are two main bills that could get passed. One is a ban on bump stocks that's been sitting in the queue since October and when around the time of Vegas, which is unfortunate because I think as we kind of opened this segment, it was uh, the conversation happens it kind of dies off in two weeks and people become immune to shootings, which is so unfortunate to even say on air, but I think it's been true. Um, this time feels a little different. The other bill to vote on is the bipartisan fix NICS act. And the underlying sentiment is that many agencies consistently fail to report criminal records to the national instinct criminal background check system, NICS. And this bill would increase enforcement of the rule and give states financial incentives to report. In your opinion, Mike, do you think passing that would solve some of these issues? Is that a step in the right in the right direction? Yeah, I think it would be a step in the right direction. Um, if they can go in and and you know alarm the Nick's background check that there has been an issue that somebody was uh, admitted to maybe a mental health facility, then absolutely at that time that should stop that, that process on the gun sale. Same thing uh, on, the, on the bump stock, absolutely we've never sold them, never will, and they should be banned, 100%. I think there's no reason uh, a civilian needs to have that apparatus to, to try to make a, a, a gun almost operational as automatic. So I think that uh, most, and hopefully we can get that get that through. The other thing I, I did not mention, in, in Washington State, too, on a pistol, there's a whole other form and background check that needs to be done, and that's at the state level. Um, and and we just got to make sure that the people that are getting some information on these individuals that have either, you know, um, been admitted to a mental health facility or have had some, um, you know, other felony acts should not be owning firearms. And if it's not getting reported, then we need to fix that part of the system. Now, now the mental health issue, I think we should talk on briefly because that raised a lot of red flags on both the Republican and Democrat side when Obama uh, issued that executive order because he required mental health issues be reported to the social security administration. And the problem with that was um, it felt like kind of a, a, a breach of uh, personal information on the Democrat side. I think that was their, their problem with it. And then it was just a harder way to obtain a gun, which the NRA opposed. And so that was kind of the conservative take. And so that it wasn't popular in the room at all. Um, a year ago, Trump immediately got rid of that law. And I have a quote here. While the list of eligible mental disorders is long, ranging from anxiety to eating disorders to schizophrenia, those who would have been reported by the agency had to meet two main criteria. They were receiving full disability benefits because of a mental illness and couldn't work. 
And two, they were unable to manage their own benefits, thus needing the help of a third party to do so. So that was, it was an attempt to put into place more regulation around mental health and, and those that struggled with mental health issues to not obtain a gun. But then it was immediately revoked as soon as Trump took office. I don't, I don't really know personally where I, where I stand on that one because I think mental health should be a topic of conversation. Now, there are also reports that the guy in Las Vegas and the shooter, I don't even like mentioning their names personally, uh, the Las Vegas shooter and the Parkland shooter uh, may not have even fallen into the category of mental health, which becomes just a, it, you know, an issue in its, in its own right. I mean, how do you, I, I don't know if there's a way to get around the mental health issue um, unless it's just really obvious. I, I mean, I, I guess I just don't know enough about mental health in my view. I, if there is a documented mental health concern or issue or someone is undergoing treatment for a condition, um, particularly something like, like schizophrenia, but I mean, even something, even something like depression, right? I mean, you're going to have increased incidences, whether it's homicide or suicide, anyone who's going through any sort of a mental health challenge, uh, in, in my view should, should likely be restricted from owning a gun. I'm not exactly sure, uh, how, how they would make that happen and, and how those things are, are regulated and documented. Uh, but I, I do think that's an important part of the conversation. Yeah, I, I think it is a, a tricky issue. We probably, you know, need to do a lot more research on that. Um, and so that, that is a difficult, you know, how do we get the right answer? What is considered, you know, truly the, the mental health where you shouldn't, you know, have the firearm and so forth. Um, but uh, I do believe that, you know, even outside of that, they can make it a little bit more difficult to just walk in and, and get a firearm. Now, I will tell you, we 100% believe in having to do the paperwork um, because years ago you could just walk into a gun show, you could put down $200, and you could walk away with whatever firearm there was that day. And And I think with with what's been happening and so forth, there needs to be um, documentation of, of who's owning the, the firearm. And, and um, you know, again, I wish that there was more courses. We, we have courses that we offer to our customers, and um, I just think that that would be a lot more important, too, to, to help educate these people. Because we've seen these sad, sad tragedies that are deliberately happened but there's also so many sad tragedies that are accidental, and those should and could be prevented. Mike, you, you yeah, talk. I, oh, go ahead, Kev. Yeah, yeah I, I, I say that that there's one other kind of part of tragedy that, that, that we haven't talked about yet. And while there are like tragedies that are that are deliberate and, and kind of homicidal, there are tragedies that are accidental, and and, and obviously. You want to try and do everything to fix them. One of the one of the interesting things about firearms is if you look at um, is we haven't talked about suicides, and when you look at suicides by almost every other measure, the success rate is twenty percent or below. If you try and kill yourself through an overdose or through cutting your wrists or through you know, um, you know almost any other method other than kind of jumping off a very tall building, which is 
pretty much certain to kill you. you know, it's, it's, it's actually pretty hard to kill yourself. And most people who try and fail do not try again. They don't, you know, they, they, it, uh, the suicide is not a, a wish to die as much as a, a cry for help from someone who's having a really hard time. And yet, the wide availability of firearms exacerbates that tragedy for families far more than, than, than maybe it needs to. And there are a lot of people who feel unable to cope at certain points in their lives who end up successfully taking their life with a firearm, where had that firearm not been, ab- been available, they could have actually survived and gone on to live a, a, a happy life. And that's the third tragedy that the wide availability of firearms you know, kind of make, makes more prevalent. Cove, I think that ties a little bit to some of what Mike was talking about earlier with uh, gun safety in the home as well. I mean, all of the statistics yeah. that I've read are that guns, homes that have guns see rates of homicide and suicide go up uh, by, by pretty stark amounts. Uh, homicide by by 40%, suicide by 90%. And I think a big part of that is making sure the people who are buying guns are, are storing them safely, know how to use them, uh, know yes. what what powerful weapons they are. Um, and, and and Mike, so to, to that point, you've talked a little bit about what what your stores have done uh, to to try to play a role in this issue, uh, in this podcast, you know, we're, we're fairly business focused as, as business students. And so I'd like to get a little bit more at, uh, how you've been approaching it from a business angle, particularly in terms of, uh, some of your competition. And so, you know, Dick's, Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart, two of the, two of the biggest sellers of guns in the United States, Walmart being the biggest, uh, have, have recently decided that, you know, if lawmakers are not going to take action, they were going to take action. They've increased the minimum age to 21. They've stopped selling high capacity magazines and assault rifles. Uh, I, I would be curious to get your take on that and uh, both in terms of, uh, in, in terms of what your companies have done. And then just in general, in terms of what you think the responsibility of a company like yours is, or a CEO of, someone like Walmart or Dick Sporting Goods is in kind of shaping shaping this conversation and, and being a part of the policy solutions moving forward. Yeah, they, they've taken the stand of uh, raising the age to, to 21. Um, currently, we follow all state and federal laws, and that's what we've decided to do at this time. Uh, I will tell you, we've had emails on both sides uh, of the aisle on that, and I do know that Walmart and uh, Dicks is being sued currently by some of their employees that are, um, you know, not 21, but legal age to buy a rifle or each other. Um, so we're, we're presently, we're, we are doing what the law says we have to do. And if the law changes to 21, you know, personally, I would have no problem whatsoever with that. Um, but there's a lot of debate, you know, going back and forth with, you know, what is, you know, what what is legal, um, and we want to make sure that we, as long and every gun store for that matter, is following the legal laws. Um, I don't know what the what the end ramification is going to be with with Walmart um, and Dicks. Uh, I do know that I think Dicks hasn't been selling pistols for many many years, um, so they're uh, going to 21. Um, with the rifles and, and shotguns, 
is is the decisions that they're making, uh, which I, I'm not saying it's a, a bad decision. Um, we're just currently, with our business partners that we've talked to, we're going to uh, stay with what the federal law, the state law is, you know, at this time. Have, have you have you received any any pressure from? I, I think you were talking about Dix and Walmart have received kind of those lawsuits. Have you received any pressure from either side of the aisle about changing any of your policies or, or anything that you guys are doing? Oh yeah, we we, we get emails every day um, from from hey you need to stay with the the state and federal laws to. Uh, others that say, "Hey, if I don't change it to 21, they will not shop with us any longer." Um, and so, yeah, we're we're getting it on both sides uh, right now. And uh, currently, we we've made the decision that we need to stay with what the federal law and, and state laws are allowing. Hey, Mike, I remember. Well, I, I want to pick up on just a little bit. Um, so. Obviously, a lot of what we're, going to, what we're kind of moving to talk on now is self-regulation. It's companies and businesses um, deciding to either do more than is required or, or like you do with kind of stopping sales if you, if you perceive someone to, to, to not be capable or, or trained or, or safe enough with a firearm. So within the industry, there, there, is, a, there is obviously a, a feeling of... of, of there's a level of responsibility that retailers should have, um, whether that's Walmart or Dick's or small independent retailers, to do, do more in, in whatever sense than the law requires, to have that kind of sense check of, of kind of, do we feel this is a, 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 a good person, you know, or to, or to, or to kind of institute regulations that, that go, go beyond the law. Well, it sounded and like they yeah. already... Uh, I mean, Mike. Mike's the one to answer, but yeah. I, it sounded like they already do that a little bit, Cove. In you know, just as Mike was mentioning, smelling alcohol on one's breath or getting a feeling that this guy. Yeah. I mean, they they can refuse the right to sell a gun to anyone. But Mike, you're obviously better to better suited to answer that one. Well, well and the next question would be, you know, um, if if I've got uh, four or five hundred thousand dollars in inventory. And I go to the manufacturers, and if the manufacturers would be willing to take all these firearms back, it, it might make some things a little bit easier. Now, we've talked to them, and they basically, when, when things come to our building, they're ours. We, we pay for them, uh, you know, right then, right now. And currently, you know, we're, we're sitting on millions and millions of dollars of, of inventory. I've had some people even come in and say, you know, we've been in business since 68, and if I continue to sell firearms, they will not shop with me. Well, I've got other customers that say, you're doing everything by the law. You know, we, we want to continue to shop. So it, it's a tough, um, it's a tough uh, subject to talk about as far as, you know, what is the right thing. And, and we want to make sure, you know, we're doing whatever is the right thing and legal. But at the end of the day, I can't tell you how much we need to stress the safety and, and locking up these firearms. We've been partnering with children's hospitals for the last five years, and I've given away over 4,000 lockboxes. And we were the ones that have pioneered that. And if this can take off uh, throughout the country, I think we can get a lot more um, safety devices in, into the market. 
Hey, Mike, I remember living. I remember living in Seattle, and a couple of years ago, and they implemented or instituted a new local city tax on guns in the city of Seattle. Was that obviously an, an effort to raise more funds for the city of Seattle? But do you think that was also kind of a gun control effort that that they felt necessary to implement? Well, we, we, we believe it is. Um, they predicted to raise $500,000. The first year they raised $103,000. And of that 103000 I paid in $92,000. Wow. And so we are the only gun store, uh, sporting goods store left in Seattle. Um, and the question I ask them, and we've talked about this, is if I decide to stop selling the firearms and stop selling the ammunition, what is the sustainability of their programs to continue? Because they took out $500,000 plus out of the general fund two years ago, and total, year to date, they've only collected about $185,000, and by this time it was supposed to be over a million dollars. And if I decide I'm 90 for about 90% of the pay-in is, a, is a, one of the only establishments left. Their thought was, well, we'll just kind of keep doing this until maybe he decides not to sell guns and ammunition anymore. I don't know. They haven't come out and said that. But my question to them is, where's the sustainability if I decide not to do this? The other thing is, I proposed, if they want to take all the sales tax dollars that the city generates from me and or any other gun store, they would raise a lot more than their hundred and some thousand dollars. My sales have dropped twenty percent. The sales tax dollars that I used to generate to the city was over a million dollars a year, and now I'm giving them about seven hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. Wow. Um, well, I, I think it's probably we're I think we're butting up against an hour, and the the thing about this conversation is that it could go for hours, and maybe we'll do an after hours episode on this and kind of recap. But what I'd like to as kind of our last topic is have we for our listeners have we gotten anywhere in this hour? Do we have a solution necessarily, or have we just kind of debated as as others do? Um, and, and I think we've come to the consensus that stricter background checks should likely be implemented. Um, the one, the one, um, and everyone's shaking their head. Yes. So, okay. So we have consensus there. The, the one bill to beef up the, uh, the NICS database, I think that should get passed. There are incentives for, uh, local municipalities to, to report criminal offenses there's no reason if that's the, as Mike said, that's one of the databases that gets checked against sale of firearms. There's no reason that there should be loopholes or missed offenses recorded into that database. So I think that's number two. There's a good second solution. Um, bump stocks. I, I don't really understand anyone needing a bump stock. So just get rid of them. And Mike has said again, his store never has and never will sell bump stocks, but let's just ban them. So there's number three. Uh, anyone else want to jump in here? I, I do think we've, we've talked about it a little bit and Cove mentioned it earlier in my view on assault weapons in general and on high capacity magazines is that 
you know, if you, if you need an assault weapon to go shoot a deer or a duck, then you probably should take up golf. Uh, that, that would be my view. Uh, and so I'm not sure there's any reason to have those assault weapons or high capacity magazines on the market. So I would, I would pose that as number four, but and I, th- I know that's a little more controversial. And I think number five, we haven't really talked a lot about it, but I think we all agree. Uh, and if anyone doesn't feel free to kind of say something quickly is more security at schools. I'm thinking post nine 11 TSA stepped up their security game. I'm thinking about a lot of companies that have closed campuses um, with security. Uh, I, we don't have to go into specific solutions, but I think number five would be up security at schools. And, and we could take that one offline. I mean, because I think that is an opportunity for the private sector to get involved. That's increased jobs. It requires some training, but there are, there are opportunities to, in, to beef up security. I agree. I think number six, if I were to put one on and, and maybe this is also controversial to actual business owners, but it sounded like Mike, you were behind this is institute some sort of, gunner gun ownership education program and a license that would that you would have to be required to obtain in order to then purchase a gun i don't think that's far out of the question yeah i i would i would uh, encourage that would it would it slow the sales down of of what we do yes it would uh, and i'm okay with that again i'm not out there to sell as many guns as we can. I would rather sell fewer guns, but make sure everybody understands how to use them, how to how to keep them safe, how to keep them out of children's you know hands and, and their friends, um, and and spend some more money on the educating. And would that mean fewer guns in in the marketplace? Yes, because some people would not want to go through that. Um, and if that's the case, then, then they don't need to go through it, but then we don't need to sell them a gun either. Yeah, so the, the last thing I'd say is I, I think given the reality of, of, of where we are in terms of politics in this country, all these common sense programs that are, as everyone, you know, as, 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 as Carl noted, so bipartisan and have so much popular support and yet cannot pass through a U.S. legislature that is dominated by money from the NRA or just a, a fundamental mistrust of where even the most modest reform might one day end up, that this, these, types of, um, these types of reform, these types of change, these types of initiative are never going to come from Washington. That, 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 that's just not realistic to believe that uh, the lawmakers in this country are going to be able to institute even, you know, widely popular bipartisan reforms. So it really does come down to people like Mike, the industry, and you know the the, the people who have a vested interest in maintaining this freedom, maintaining the kind of gun sales in America for the long term to do the right thing and to help and, and, and do everything they can in terms of self-regulation. And, and that's where it's going to come from. That's where change is going to come from because it will not come from lawmakers. And, and Mike, uh, you know, you're, you're an idol here. You're 4,000 lockboxes given away uh, for the safety of children. That's highly commendable. 
thank you very much for dialing in and, and talking about this conversation um, or talking through this conversation with us. You're, you know, a, a prominent figure, especially definitely in Seattle. Um, you've expressed opinions on Fox News before and you're, you know, well-respected in the industry. So really appreciate you taking the time. Um, well, I appreciate, I appreciate all you guys and, and all your inputs are very valuable. Um, and I hope that, you know, young men like you guys and, and, and young ladies that, that have a passion for what you guys are trying to get out there is, is very important. Um, and, and we respect everybody's opinion. I think we, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we could all, um, come together and, and come up with some sensible, uh, uh, solutions because I, I do believe that there are some that would would help. Would it would it take away everything? Unfortunately, probably not. Um, but we just gotta we gotta keep moving forward. And what you what you guys are doing uh, is a is a great step in the right direction. And appreciate that. And I think it's in line with what those are doing to raise awareness uh, post Parkland and the marches on Saturday. It, you know, it's bringing really heavy national attention to this issue. I don't think it's going to get brushed off in two weeks. Like I feel like it did after the Vegas shooting, which was just incredibly unfortunate. Um, so kudos to all those. What I would ask of those millennial listeners is come up with solutions and propose them rather than saying uh, it kind of, you know, blowing the whistle so to speak i think i think solutions are very valuable and we attempt to do that on this episode this evening um it is custom tradition for us at the end of every every episode and mike you're a patriot you'll you'll appreciate this we raise a glass to the men and women fighting overseas and domestically for allowing us preserving the first amendment right to discuss these issues openly um so thank you all who are serving and that is a wrap. Thank you very much. There'll be days like this. Oh, my mama told me there'll be days like this.